You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is our first episode for the year of our Lord 2019, uh, episode 255 for those who are counting. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. And with me this afternoon is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? I'm good, David. How are you? Uh, Pretty decent. Just trying to stay dry because it's raining out. Also with us is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? I am doing well. Uh, We're well into classes, got some good groups it looks like this year, so enjoying what I do. As you always do, sir. An inspiration to one and all. Well, anything on the network that we want to point to before we uh, get into today's topic? Uh, Sectarian Review, by the time this drops, we'll have a new episode on bluing. Uh, I'll confess that I have not listened to it yet because it's not out on the podcatchers as we record, so I'm going to find out with the listeners what bluing means. <laughs> oh, good, because uh, I, uh, I was afraid you knew and I didn't. No idea. And we've also got a couple of Christian Humanist Profiles uh, interviews up. Uh, one with my friend uh, Chris Maxwell, who's the campus pastor here at Emmanuel College, about his new collection of poetry, A Slow and Sudden God. Uh, and then also, by the time we record this, there will be an interview with Adam Clark, uh, who was a doctoral student of uh, James Cone. You'll remember we did a three-episode series right. on James Cone's book. Well, I interviewed uh, someone who wrote his dissertation for James Cone, so that Dude. was a good bit of fun as well. That's really cool. Well, and Christian Feminist is, is, is busy. Uh, they, they put out a recommendations episode uh, this month. And uh, y'all watched 101 Dalmatians, Michael. So Yes, we yep. did. Uh, is that out? That must be out. Yeah, it's out. Um, what are y'all watching next? Sword in the Stone and Coil Neal is going to be on. Oh, that's rad. I, the, that the sword and you're doing the sword in the stone not not that Cole Neal is going to be on it I'm I'm not excited about that <laughs> I am a little bit excited about that dude has a radio voice so uh, today we are looking at the topic of our reading um, my, my title that I have at the top of our notes is what we're reading um, because hey it's the beginning of the episode it's a super busy time for us and I thought, what's something we could talk about without reading a book? <laughs> is the beginning of the semester a busy time for us? Like, I, I feel like I have more free time the first two weeks of the semester than the rest of the year combined. It's really busy for me, but 
I think it's because I put off a lot of class prep until, you know, things actually start. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot busier for me on the administrative end, but then the teaching end kicks in about three weeks in, like you were saying, Michael. Yeah, administrative stuff too, yeah. Anyhow, we are book people uh, for lots of reasons, and I imagine that you too, like me, got into English, uh, the English teaching business, at least in part because you love books. Uh, but we do several kinds of reading these days, uh, most of it not for leisure. It's not exactly what I imagined it would be, being an English professor. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about what books we've read this last year and intend to read and what kinds of reading we've done and will do or haven't done and, and so forth. So uh, this one will be mostly just sort of uh, going around the circle uh, because this is talking about our experience. Well, first one, and we'll start with you, Nathan. Um, I think wistfully about those long ago days when my reading time was fun time and uh, maybe that it was it was that way for you too. So, how much leisure reading did you do in your youth, and how much do you have time for today? And have your leisure reading habits changed since then? Well, I grew up uh, as I imagine uh, a lot of English professors did, uh, making regular trips to the public library. Uh, you know, I I had several books out from the library at any given time when I was in. Later grade school, I remember uh, getting into the choose-your-own-adventure books a great deal. Yes. Uh, oh, man, <laughs> those, those were great. Uh, which, of course, proved the gateway drug into uh, solo role-playing games like uh, the Lone Wolf series. I don't know if you two were even... Uh, I totally know Lone Wolf. Oh, righteous, awesome. righteous. Yeah. Which, of course, in turn led me to Dungeons & Dragons, but we talked about that over on Sectarian Review. And, and here, that led and you straight here. to hell. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> By the time I got to uh, junior high and high school, I mean, I had, you know, taken to reading uh, a lot of nonfiction stuff. Uh, you know, I was a, a big history reader back then. Uh, I also got into, you know, uh, cyberpunk science fiction novels, William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, that sort of constellation of writers. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was younger and, you know, my my work responsibilities were, you know, 20 hours a week at the public library. Yes, that was my first job too. Uh, you know, I had a lot more time to read such things and I did, uh, you know, so I, I do remember such things fondly. How about you, Michael? Yeah, I, uh, I spent a lot of time at the library too. I could still close my eyes and think of the Lilburn, Georgia public library and uh, how, how cool and shady it always seemed to be. Uh, I didn't read a lot of genre fiction when I was a kid, as I don't read a lot of genre fiction now. I um, I loved the Judy Bloom books, uh, which I, I've talked about, I think, in some detail on Before They Were Live about my deep abiding love for Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing and the way it kind of captured my imagination about what <laughs> life in New York City must be like. Um, so I, I read those. I read Beverly Cleary, of course, and I read other books like that. I guess they'd now be called young adult when I was uh, when I was that age uh, we called them juvenile fiction uh, and and still I think to some extent those books kind of set the template for the sorts of reading I do the the kind of uh, slice of life realist stuff that I tend to to focus on I think you can trace straight back 
into uh, Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom. I also learned an awful lot about puberty long before I knew what puberty was because I read Judy Bloom books that were above my station in life, as it were. I don't. I, I imagine a lot of people first learned about wet dreams from. Uh, then again, maybe I won't. I certainly did. Uh, I read the Choose Your Own Adventure books like crazy in uh, in elementary and, and middle school and probably into some into high school I don't really I don't really remember that in high school I started to read things that I thought would make me look smarter so I read Dostoevsky in high school and T.S. Eliot and people like that um, and you know I, obviously I'm not putting them down at all we've done episodes on both of those people uh, but I, I can't say I went into it with the purest of intentions uh, what else um I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I have anything else beyond that. You guys aren't saying anything. <laughs> we're we're waiting for you to yeah. finish. Yeah, I mean, mine would be kind of an echo of Nathan's. I never, I never actually got a job at the library, but um, they might as well have put me on payroll. Um, there, you know, about three different libraries because uh, we we moved. Um, we moved at, at, at one point um, in my life and we also switched churches at one point. And so because of the, the regular ways in which um, our, the traffic flow of our life meant uh, different libraries became accessible. Um, but the church library had a big role in, in my earliest childhood reading. Um, I can still remember they had an entire shelf of Hardy Boys and an entire shelf of Nancy Drew, and I just read the entire shelves left to right. Um, those were my uh, those were my introductions to to mysteries, along with Encyclopedia Brown. Oh, I, I left out Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, I, Encyclopedia Brown was formative, man. Like he's 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 one of those people that I I read those books. And the, the first time I read him, it was like finding a cool person that I could be, right? Encyclopedia Brown was, um, was, was huge for me. You what know, was Hardy... his nickname? The Sherlock in Sneakers, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think that was on a lot of the book covers, Sherlock and Sneakers. His name was Leroy, if you remember. I do. Well, I do. And, and of course, every single Encyclopedia Brown book begins with an introductory chapter that if it wasn't word for word the same in all the books, it may as well have been. Right. Right. Did you read us like the boxcar children along those lines? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think I read the boxcar children. Yeah. And the, Bo- and the Bobsy Which- Twins, too. Yeah, Bobsy Twins. Bobsy Twins was actually the first chapter book that I ever read. Bobsy Twins at Pilgrim Rock was the first chapter book I ever read. Um, so very, very fond memories of those uh, kind of uh, the, 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 the series, uh, the series chapter books and series mysteries. Um, goosebumps. You guys are probably a little old for goosebumps. Yeah. Goosebumps came along after I was, I think I was in high school when they, they became big. I bet, I bet Same I read, thing all of the first 30 of them you know they put out a new one every month now i will say that uh one of the librarians i worked with carrie green he had a uh conspiracy theory that rl stein was the name of a collective of writers which is was... true of carolyn keen and franklin l dixon but i think uh, rl stein is not only one person i think he actually writes all those books i'll be 
Yeah, yeah, with uh, the Nancy Drew Hardy Boys and Bobsy Twins, and then some other series that have kind of fallen out of play. They were they were productions of the Stratemeyer Syndicate stable of writers. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a pretty interesting history to get into, but I won't. But you know, alas, uh, it's been I, I it's been years since I've been um, regularly in libraries. Um, I've been to the closest library in Houston, um, but mainly uh, for and with my children. Um, I, I haven't figured out where in there they have the sorts of things that I like to read. And a lot of the stuff that I used to go and look for, they, they just don't seem to stock anymore. Um, they have a lot of media and a lot of computer spaces, and the, the book's not quite as much. Um, you know. Well, and also, I assume if you wanted a book, you would not check it out from the public library, but from your university library. Yeah, that's often the, that's often the case. Yeah, um, that's what I do anymore as well. Yeah, HBU has a good library, and, and if they don't have it, we're in the same city with Rice and the U of H, and you know, I can get pretty much everything within the week in terms of interlibrary loan. Yeah, interlibrary I, loan is an amazing thing. I... um. I'll talk about this a little later, I'm sure, but I'm writing a book on Gabriel Marcel and I'm translating his plays from French. And uh, I, I have, I don't know what I would do without Interlibrary Loan because they're sending me ancient copies of these plays that have never been published in English from all over the world. And I just think, man, what was life as a scholar like before Interlibrary Loan? Uh, yeah, uh, you, you, you would have to have somebody funding you going there. One of the books, one of the books I got, I, I, this has never happened to me before. But one of the books I got was uncut. Oh, wow. fascinating! That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Well, but thank God for interlibrary yeah. loan. I know that's not what our episode's about. Yeah. Well, did y'all get any leisure reading done in the last year? Is is I know the the halcyon days of youth are are gone, but have you gotten a chance to read anything for fun? I Any try more? to read for fun. At night, sometimes I try to read things that I don't have to have a pen to read. You know what I mean? Things yeah, I can just yeah. not pay attention to. I tend to read magazines. I We subscribe to The New Yorker. I get Image, Comment, and a few other ones. So I, I tend to read those because there's a sense of urgency. If I don't read this one, there's going to be another one that comes. Uh, the last few weeks, I've had a little bit more time to do that. Uh, so I read some books I got for Christmas. I read Dubliners, which I'd somehow never read. And um, I, I read through the first book of Father Brown Mysteries last week. And Yay. I'm reading some essays by Lauren Isley right now. So, I mean, I, I try to. I, I'm not great at leisure reading. I'm not great at reading things that I don't immediately try to turn into some sort of project. What about you, Nathan? Yeah, I think I've got that same problem, too. I uh, If I have time to read something that I'm not reading for class or for whatever I'm writing at the time, uh, you know, I, I look for things that could become the next project. Now that said, uh, I did. Uh, I, I think I got an email coupon for a an ebook on like Google Play or something like that. So I bought the ebook version of Autobiography of Malcolm X, and I reread that for the first time in about twenty years last year, and that was fascinating. I finally got around to reading uh, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, which I didn't realize until my dad told me the guy actually wrote about our family. That's not a literal statement. It was just a, a, a shocking sense of recognition as I read about this, you know, very redneck 
Midwestern coal town family that J.D. Vance comes from and realizing that uh, his family story and mine are so similar. Uh, and then on the Christmas front, my uh, friend and colleague here in the Emmanuel College English Department, Jason Huddleston, uh, gave me a collection of Italo Calvino short stories. So I've been reading those, you know, kind of when I've got 20 minutes, half an hour, I read one of these, you know, acid trip, science fiction-y Cuban stories uh, that I have absolutely no background for, which is why I call them acid trip, you know, science fiction <laughs> stories instead of their actual, you know, literary critical name. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I've been able to do some leisure reading this year. How about you, David? Uh, some, some, I mean, it's, it's, uh, kind of like you, Michael, I, I, it's, it's usually bedtime. Um, but honestly, that means that, uh, I'll, I'll get, you know, I'll get two and a half pages in and then suddenly wake up and 30 minutes have passed and (laughs) I fell asleep reading. Um, most nights I fall asleep. Uh, I fall asleep reading. Um, I reread a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I, for some reason, um, as, as I've gotten older, my, my leisure reading has become more, more tentative. I tend to kind of go back to things that I'm comfortable with. I think it's because I keep falling asleep. Um, I, I just don't seem to have the stamina for a 300 page novel that's completely new at bedtime. Cause that's the only time I have to read anymore. And I keep losing my momentum, so I I read things that I know, because <laughs> I know I'm only going to get about you know three pages in. Yeah, that's interesting that you guys are talking about bedtime because uh, I'm a person who falls asleep very readily at night. Uh, so I mean, that's when my wife and I'll watch you know serial television. You know, we'll watch an episode of Murdoch Mysteries or House of Cards or something like that, and then Mary will stay up and read, but I'll pretty much be unconscious. You know, as soon as we turn the television episode off. That's I just, I just have to keep my phone out of the bedroom if I want to read at night. Yeah. That makes some sense. And like you said, Nathan, uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff, a lot more with audiobooks when I commute. Uh, I'm, I'm usually listening to uh, a novel. Um, because, and because, you know, I, I, I don't have an Audible subscription. I'm getting all this stuff off of LibriVox. It's all old public domain stuff. So, you know, if it's an 100-year-old adventure novel or a mystery or something like that, you know, that's that's the stuff that I'm reading because that's the stuff I have freely accessible and that's the stuff that I have time for um, because that's my commute. Um, fortunately, though, you know, I'm teaching a class this semester that is dipping into kind of historical speculative fiction. And so a lot of my fun reading in the fall was also kind of class prep reading, really. Have you got any leisure reading planned for the coming year? Anything anything you want that you've got your eyes on or you want to spend more time or anything like that? Uh, not really on my front. I mean, it's just kind of what comes to me. Yeah, I, uh, I have a list of books that I look for when I go to half price books, but I don't I don't I try not to have too big of a plan because once I start making plans, uh, my life begins to revolve around them and it's bad for my mental health. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, for me, plans means guilt when they don't work. I love an inhuman system. (laughs) Right. Well, much of like I said, much of my reading these days, 
is for professional purposes, especially class prep. And I was, well, I just, I was just talking about how some, a lot of my leisure reading in the fall was actually class prep for the spring. So, um, starting with Nathan, how much, how much do you read for class prep? How deep do you read? Do you actually reread the books that you teach regularly? Yeah, I do. I mean, that, that is one of the things that, uh, my own, uh, literature professor Jack Knowles uh who you know in my undergrad years was sort of my literature mentor the way that Phil Kennison was my philosophy mentor uh he made a point of talking about you know when he taught freshman humanities which is you know this interdisciplinary curriculum we were part of uh he always made a point of uh rereading the text that we took on and I kind of internalized that and I've made it my habit over the years How's that been good for you? You know, honestly, I mean, it gets me to assign good books because I make myself assign things that I don't mind returning to uh, year after year after year. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things that, um, I mean, I know our listeners have heard me bag on Edgar Allan Poe so many times in this show that they're probably tired of it. But one of the things that uh, I find tiresome about Poe that I don't necessarily find tiresome about other American authors is that once I've taught a Poe short story twice, I stop finding new things in it. Now, it might just be that I'm a bad reader of Edgar Allan Poe, but my my hunch is that there's really not all that much more left to find in it. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. So so even for classes that you that you teach regularly and books that you teach regularly, you you're not really coasting. You're no, I mean, them. you know, to, to give the, the prime example, I have taught Plato's Republic somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 times now, um, maybe more than that, and I read it word by word every time I teach it because there is almost always something new in there that I haven't noticed before or a question that I wasn't ready to confront yet. Uh, and, you know, honestly, the times that I teach it where I do coast a little bit because I won't try to pretend that I'm perfect on that front, uh, I always get the sense that I should have read it. Well, right. nothing's more embarrassing than when you when you do coast and uh, a student points out something you missed, or you, yes. or you say something's not in the text that is in. I mean, it's uh, that that's embar- That's enough to make you read it every time, even Absolutely. if you weren't going yep. to. Is it, do you are you a are you a methodical, disciplined rereader as well, Michael? No, I, uh, I, I try to reread and I would say in, in classes that are discussion classes, I probably reread three quarters of the time, uh, in classes I teach every year, it's probably closer to two thirds. And, uh, the one lecture class I have is intro to philosophy. And I cannot promise that I, now that the lectures are written, I, I, I do not always reread in that class. So I, I want to, but you know, I have only so much time and, uh, if, if, the, the less helpful I think it's going to be to reread it, the less likely I am to reread it. Mm, yeah. I mm, Some stuff I reread, um, some stuff I've read so much, uh, um, that, I, that I can remember like specifically where on the page quotes are and things like that. Um, but I teach, um, there, there's one particular class that I teach every every fall spring and summer 
And so that, that particular reading list, I'm pretty familiar with it. The problem that I found, and this, I'm, and I, I, I think I'm going to have to start doing what you do, Nathan, is that I found that as I wing it, um, I'm starting to camp out on a, on a, a narrower and narrower portion of, of each text, the places where my memories are sharpest. And so uh, I found that, you know, just coasting, um, I'm paying attention to less of what's there. And I, I need to, I need to stop doing that. Um, so that, that is one thing that I felt bad about. So does prepping for a new course fill you with delight or dread knowing that you've got like a whole bunch of new things to read closely and have thoughts about Nathan? Well, I, I did this uh, actually in the fall. I, uh, you know, I wrote my dissertation on uh, Spencer and Shakespeare and Milton, but I never taught it because Chris Hare, uh, who got to Emmanuel a couple years before I did, uh, was our Shakespearean and our Miltonist. Well, he took a job in Oklahoma, so I got to teach a uh, Shakespeare class for the first time, and I found it just exhilarating. Uh, now, it wasn't necessarily new material for me because I had been over that ground a lot uh, between comps and writing the dissertation. Uh, but teaching it for the first time was definitely a lot of fun for me. That's cool. What about you, what about you Michael? Do you, do you avoid taking on new things because of the, the reading involved? No. And in fact, I, uh, I reorganize many of my courses every time I teach them because I get bored reading the same things over and over. So I, I typically look forward to it. Uh, here's a question. Do you guys teach things you haven't read at the start of the semester? So, so like I, I have a couple books this semester. I don't like to do this, but I didn't have time to read them. Um, I, so I'll be reading them for the first time with the students. Do you do that? I have done it in the past. I prefer not to. It is nerve wracking. A, a lot of times you do it and you're like, oh, please don't let there be a sex scene. Please don't let there be a sex scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. I have assigned things that I have not read in their entirety, or I thought I'd read them, but then when I went and looked at it more closely, um, I'd read like an excerpt or something like that, um, and that and that was kind of embarrassing because I thought I knew I thought I knew what I'd assigned, but I had but I didn't actually. Um, but I have um, this year actually I'm teaching uh, teaching a course that's run that runs over the whole course of the year because it's a dual credit class um and that i had read probably about 40 percent of the reading list oh wow and so when i started the semester um you know there were there were definitely books that i had not read at all or had not read closely um that were part of this that they were part of the set syllabus so at least you know you know at least i could say i didn't choose them right they they were they were kind of already there sort of sort of trusting the the list uh as it was already set up but um that that's been kind of grueling and audiobooks have been my salvation and honestly um for a lot of that just listen, listening to a lot of uh, especially, you know, classical source, classical works that I'd just never gotten around to. Um, 
for the for the fall i'm a lot more comfortable in the spring half of it because it's um roman era stuff and then early christian stuff ending with boethius so um i feel a little more comfy coming into the spring um the class that uh class that i'm teaching this spring is is a new class and a new prep but because i constructed it um largely out of my leisure reading <laughs> Um, it's a, uh, a course on um, aliens and classic science fiction. And uh, but because it's a lot of the stuff that's on the reading list is stuff that I'd already had already read. Um, I'm, I'm feeling probably less afraid of it than I've felt of a new prep in a long time. Wheel, our longest running counterpart show on the network is Christian Humanist Profiles. And that constitutes an important chunk of my reading, too. Uh, I'm a little behind. So we'll start with Michael. Um, what have you read for Profiles in the last year that's stood out to you? Um, and do you read differently for Profiles than for some of the other purposes we've discussed so far? Well, I cannot remember the last time I had a Profiles episode. Uh, it was months and months ago, if I had one in 2018 at all. Now I did uh, I did just conduct three profiles interviews within a week that'll go up I think in in February and I I enjoyed those books very much I I uh, read Abigail Favale's book uh, Into the Deep which is about her conversion to Catholicism I read uh, a book by Craig Gay called Modern Technology and the Human Future. And then I read a collection of Dorothy Sayers excerpts. Uh, so all of those will go up. And I do read differently when I read for profiles in the sense that, um, well, this is kind of embarrassing to admit. I read less closely when I do profiles interviews than when I'm, when I'm uh, reading for a class because mostly you can count on the other person to carry the weight. And so what you need to do is, is have a good sense of what's going on in the book, find some things that are interesting to you, and then ask the sort of questions that will allow them to talk. So it's not that I don't read, and it's, it's not that I don't read the whole book, but I, I read it a little faster than I would a book I was teaching and probably a little slower than a book I was just reading, uh, just to read it. But yeah, a, it's hard when you're doing a profiles interview not to read it just to just to find questions to ask, uh, it's it's sometimes hard to take it as a book instead of as a as a springboard to conversation. I don't know if you guys have that problem or not. You did the the Greg Thornberry profile. Yes, I did. When was that? That must have been March. Uh, I want to I, I, I want to say it was last spring. I read that book incredibly quickly. I think I read ninety percent of that book in an afternoon. But that's not because I wasn't paying attention. It was just a, a quick read. Um, yeah, I, I, when, when I have a profiles interview to do, I tend to drop all my leisure reading and the, the book project I'm working on and just focus on that so that I can, I can get ready for it faster so that I'm not sitting on a book for six months. Uh, but right, yeah, right. the, the other, the other thing that works kind of that way, although I read these much more closely is uh, books I review every now and then I'll, I'll do a book review for the Englewood review of books and, and those also i put everything on hold and i try to read other things by the same author and there i really do go slowly and uh, pick out as much as i can so that i can make the review something worth reading and illuminative hopefully what about you nathan 
Uh, I didn't do a whole lot of of, uh, Profiles episodes in 2018 either. I was looking back through the list and realized that uh, 2017, I did a mess of them. And then 2018, I mean, well, what happened was I made a lot of requests in September and then the publishers all sent them while I was up north in December. So 2019 is also going to be a year where I do numerous ones. But the most memorable one that I did in 2018 uh, was easily David Bentley Hart. Uh, he is, you know, a, a brilliant thinker, uh, very intimidating to interview. Uh, and I, I feel like I, I held my own all right, uh, you know, despite the fact that, uh, you know, he lets you know at every turn that you are not a classicist and he is. Uh, it, it was still an interesting interview. <laughs> I also did learn something about, you know, the, the difference between the way that Michael interviews and the way that I interview when he and I jointly interviewed Steve Taylor. Um, and I, and I find this fascinating because when I set up a profiles interview, I'm thinking of it as a, a performance event, uh, where, you know, things are basically going to follow a script and Michael's goal when he interviews is to get away from the script as soon as possible. So it becomes more of a, uh, an emerging conversational thing. So that is accurate. Yeah. I, I, my favorite profiles interviews are the ones where I can, put the script away and we just have fun talking. Yeah. And that, and I, that's just not how I do interviews. So I, you know, like I said, that, that, uh, Steve Taylor was in inter- interview was interesting precisely for that reason. I, I could feel attention. And I thought, I think that the interview turned out well, uh, you know, I was trying to move it through a sort of narrative arc and Michael was like, yeah, tell us more about that. Tell us more about that. <laughs> Hey, but if I hadn't done that, we would not have gotten the story about Brett Michaels from Poison. And I think everybody can agree the interview was better for having you. I do not deny that, Michael. No, like I said, I I think ultimately uh, your interviewing style is probably better than mine. Uh, I'm just not that natural with uh, people I I hold in high esteem as you are. You can chew the fat with people who are, you know, eminent scholars and Christian rock and rollers. I get more nervous than that. So I have to have a script. Uh, Oh, I, I have to say, I always think you're a better interviewer than I am because you you have clearly done more research than I have going in. I, I think you interview like an academic and I interview like a public radio host. That's I hadn't thought about that, but I'll, I'll take it. Heck, All of that sounds I, right. I'll take that to the bank, man. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the, the interviews that, that I've listened to, you, uh, Nathan, when you were on with... Uh, Oh, let's see. Uh, I think I think Howarwas said this. Um, uh, maybe maybe some others that that, that commented on uh, cl- uh, how how obvious it was that you had read a lot of what they had written, <laughs> and 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 they appreciated um, they appreciated talking with someone who 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 had sort of been in the conversation with them for longer than the interview. Um, it, it is amazing. I, I don't know how many times you've, you guys have had this experience, but it's amazing how thankful our guests are that we listened to their book or we read their book. Oh, that's absolutely me. true. Uh, that's absolutely true. Yes. Yeah. Kristen Philippic pointed that out years ago when we first started the podcast that, that so many of them are like, Oh, I'm so touched that you, <laughs> that you, that you read the book where again, then you realize that a lot of these interviewers 
don't know anything. They don't read the book at all. And I mean, you can hear it sometimes. And if you have a show where you're interviewing two people a day for five days a week, of course you're not reading the book. Who could blame you? But there are other um, there are other weekly interview podcasts where it is uh, it is clear that they don't actually read the book they're talking about. And to me, there's just no excuse for that. I can, I can. But maybe it's easy to say that because we just do those sh- those episodes whenever we want and we divide them up among, what, six or seven of us? About that, yeah. Right. So maybe it's easy for me to say. But I will say, I did two in- two of the three interviews that are coming up. I did them on the same day. So I feel like I've, I've earned some sort of right to talk like a full-timer. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say that I do try to read more carefully, um, uh, preci- precisely for that reason. Because um, I, I, I remember, I remember Kristen Philippic telling us, uh, telling us that that she had gotten this comment, and I've gotten it, and I, I'd, I'd gotten it uh, personally a few times as well. And and honestly, I, I, I feel like that's a good. I feel like that's an, a nice compliment that we can pay to someone for the hard work that they've Absolutely. done is, is to read it and think about it carefully. Well, and I will say, you know, if Michael interviews like a NPR host and I interview like an academic, David interviews like a fan. Uh, it's, it's just, <laughs> it, it is a joy to listen to. Cause you know, you'll get these moments in in his interviews where he says, uh, yeah, Dr. Sanders, that thing you did in chapter three with the Trinity, that was awesome. It's very Chris Farley shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I am, I am, I am a little, you know, I, I, I do feel tempted to do the "I'm not worthy," <laughs> you know, you know, th- thing from Wayne's World periodically, but, um, but I don't. I try to restrain it at least somewhat. But yeah, I'm, I'm a fanboy. That, that, I think that's that's probably the good way to, good way to break that one down. I think your wife, Katie, is better than all of us. She she did a couple of interviews several years ago and hasn't done one since, I think. But uh, I, I thought she was a fantastic interviewer. Yeah. I, th- I think she'd like to do, to do more of it. Um, but right now she's kind of, um, you know, inve- in, invested in, uh, in kind of the CFP development uh, that she's, you know, the episodes that they're working on this semester. Um, she, she's having, uh, having a ball, um, with, with working, with working on that, on that material. If anybody has a book they would like to be interviewed about, you can, uh, you can send your pitch to Christian Humanist Profiles at gmail.com. Kristen maintains that email address and liaises with the press, as they say. Yep. Well, I also try to read for edification regularly. Though I don't always succeed, um, but uh, what role does reading, other than the Bible, play in your own spiritual disciplines? And do you have books that you recommend for that person, uh, for that purpose? Nathan? I do. Uh, You know, this is where, you know, my uh, reading, I think, differs somewhat from David's because uh, David is a scholar who has a you know, a very conversant and fluent familiarity with the patristics. Uh, I don't, but I do read them devotionally. So right now, for instance, I am, you know, just kind of a few minutes at a time and, you know, just kind of reading slowly and then meditating uh, on the uh, theological orations of of Gregory of Nazianzus. 
Um, nice. And, you know, th- that particular theologian has a personal connection with me as well because my seminary mentor, Fred Norris, uh, who died just a few years ago, uh, produced in the, uh, I want to say 1970s, but it might have been the 80s, uh, what was at the time sort of the uh, magisterial edition of Gregory of Nazianzus. So uh, it's it's good for me to read that because, you know, it's it's a way to connect with Fred again, and that's important to me. Uh, and on the same note, uh, I've recently acquired a, a collection of uh, Maximus the Confessor, uh, who was... Uh, who is, sorry, I shouldn't say that Paul Blowers is dead, because he's not, he's doing quite well, in fact. Uh, but uh, he was the specialty of my church history professor in seminary. So, you know, for me, for the last few years at least, uh, I've been trying to dip into the patristic writers, specifically that my mentors and my professors in seminary were most interested in. And it's largely because I've been away from seminary for almost 20 years now, so it's kind of a way for me to reconnect with them intellectually, you know, even as we are limited to emails and so on and so forth, you know, as far as our ongoing conversation. So, uh, Michael, do you get any uh, devotional or uh, spiritual reading done? Not any kind of organized way. So, I mean, I, I read spiritual books sometimes when I'm when I'm just reading, but I, I don't do any kind of prolonged study like you're talking about, any kind of meditation. Sometimes Victoria and I when we pray, we'll read. I we read a little bit of like Julie, not Julian of Norwich. What's her name? Teresa of Avila. Uh, but nothing. I mean, you're making me feel uh, envious of of your practices there because I don't really do that. Cool. Um, I I, li- I like that you brought up um, Gregory's theological orations because uh, especially the the first one um, is so focused on the 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 importance of the disposition of the one who would read on theological subjects right right and uh honestly i feel like this kind of reading no matter how much of it that you're doing or how systematic it is but it's it's so important that you have that 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 i as a christian have that kind of that kind of approach to my reading because otherwise it can I, I am in danger of of theology becoming merely a subject mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know j- it's just something that's academic um, but but reading you know reading reading for edification is, is is kind of a way of reminding myself that you know, they though dead yet speak. Oh sure, and for me that's got a couple levels to it because you know Fred and Gregory are talking to me whenever I read Gregory. Yeah, yeah. and I'll I'll go ahead and say that uh, you know if you're looking for a very affordable collection of patristic writings, uh, I bought the uh, the Catholic Way Church Fathers collection. It's the, it's the entire anti Nicene, Nicene, and post Nicene fathers for Kindle, and I think it was like four dollars or something like that. So I mean. Uh, there is a lifetime of reading there that I just got for, you know, less than, you know, a, I, I don't know, a deluxe cheeseburger at McDonald's or something like that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I do, um, the, the, honestly, this is, this is something that I often, uh, often ends up happening on my commute as well. 
Um, so it's so it's listening reading. It's audiobooks, but I'm still going to count it. Um, and my reg my my pretty regular rotation uh, is uh, Bernard on Loving God. Um, uh, and Pilgrim's Progress. I listen to both of those usually a usually through a couple times a year. I wouldn't listen to Pilgrim's Progress in the car for fear I'd fall asleep at the wheel. I I I know that I know that's your take on Pilgrim's Progress, but for me, you know, it's it's been an important part of my reading all my life, Michael. And uh, I don't know uh, for 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 me, it's always. Uh, it's always good, but I also I also do both parts as well, um, and maybe some of the maybe some of the critiques of the image of um, Pilgrim as kind of this um, Lone Ranger Christian that you kind of get in the first part gets offset by Pilgrim's by the by Pilgrim's Progress the second part. Um, there's a there's a, a community of pilgrims in in the second one. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's one that I come back to and I'm the version that I read when I was a child that was given to me when I was, I think seven or eight, um, an illustrated kind of adapted version of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, my parents, uh, I found that book at my parents' house and brought it, uh, brought it home and I've started reading it to, uh, my oldest daughter and, uh, the other night, she said, "Pilgrim's Progress is awesome because I love stories about danger." And I thought, "Yep, that sounds right." <laughs> well, I know that there are other sundry kinds of scholarly reading that we've done: um, reading for research, uh, reading to provide critique, maybe for colleagues or for students, um, proteges, reading for book reviews, that sort of thing. So, Michael, what are what are some other categories that have characterized your last year or will characterize your coming year? My uh, reading life right now is completely taken up with Gabriel Marcel stuff for this book I'm writing. Uh, so that's what I, I'm reading through his work chronologically, uh, mostly reading the the plays, which is what I'm writing about in French and reading the philosophy in English because my French is not good enough to just read French philosophy en français uh so i mean that when i have a moment to read that is typically what i read during the day and i try to do a little bit of that um every day just so i can make some sort of progress before i get completely sick of him so that's uh that, that's that's my regime of scholarly reading for the next year probably nathan uh, a couple things. One, I, I got a chance uh, over Christmas break because I wasn't teaching a uh, winter term class to uh, read some to fill in some gaps in my education. So I, I read uh, Mary B Mary Beard's book, SPQR, uh, you know, because I've read, you know, a lot of the sources from the Roman period and I've dipped in and out of, you know, various histories, but I haven't really read just a history by a historian of the, you know, hmm, Roman... Yeah. Republican Empire, and now I have, so that's good. Uh, professionally, I've been re I've, uh, I'm also working on a book, uh, even though you know Michael's going to finish his probably years before I finish mine. Uh, and so I've been reading a lot of 
philosophy about education. So uh, Pierre Hadot, I've been trying to uh, read as much as I can. I've been uh, reading books about the history of Christian education, uh, things like that, as I, I work on this book about Christian colleges. So, uh, you know, right now, uh, I'm pounding through a book simply called Intellectual Virtues uh, that is a really nice intellectual exploration of, you know, what work we can do uh, to carry forth the work of, you know, Aristotle and Aquinas for uh, a post-Enlightenment moment. So that's been good. Cool. Um, in this in this past year, uh, I was... Oh, I was part of a, a, def a defense for an MA thesis uh, committee. Um, I was the mentor for a year-long um, undergraduate uh, research project um, that was finished last spring, and also an honors thesis, um, also from last spring. And both of and um, both of the the latter two students I knew were planning on going on to graduate school. And so that was a different kind of reading task for me because I was really trying to read them. I mean, obviously I'm a student and, or I'm a teacher and they are my students. And so you read them in that particular kind of way. But I was really trying to kind of step back and read them as a peer reading a peer, as a scholar reading a scholar. What would I say to the person who wrote this if they weren't my student? Um... And that was a really, um, really kind of a good gear, gear shift for me. Um, it was an, 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 an interesting, an interesting shift in my writing because, because up till now I've graded so many essays, but that kind of more substantive research project that's going to go on and be a graduate school, um, you know, a sample and, um, or a master's thesis, you know, that, that level of thing, I had not been involved um, as a reader in those kind of situations um, up until this past year. And that was, that was, that was actually really, um, really rewarding to, to be able to give that kind of, um, that kind of feedback to be part of projects in that way. Um, worked on a review, which was really tough. Uh, I've, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I haven't I haven't written um, I haven't written a lot of reviews at all um, and none that had been published within uh, kind of a journal context. Um, so this this was kind of my foray into it and it was uh, it was really tough for me to try to find the voice in which I say I'm not I'm not entirely happy with everything that happens in this book. Um, for, for some reason talking about it orally uh, is is so different from having to how do I, how do I read this book and then formulate the language that isn't just isn't just bashing knowing that there's a decent chance that the person who wrote it's going to read it um, that was kind of a challenge too well to wrap up um are we doing a triptych this semester guys uh, i'm waiting for a theologian to die <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is that the only occasion uh, i'm sorry i i well as soon as i saw your show notes david i knew i was going to make that joke and i'd probably regret it um 
and both <laughs> turned out to be true. That's excellent. Well, um, you know, it's it's it's. To, do we usually do a triptych a year, or is it a triptych a semester? I can't remember. We can't usually remember do some kind is. of triptych each semester, although it's not always about a single volume. The last two semesters yeah. have been about a single volume, just because with the passing of George Lindbeck and then the passing of James Cone, I wanted to do something with both of those writers. Uh, so I mean, I've been monopolizing the triptychs here lately. So I'm, I, I, I kind of feel bad about that. I kind of hope you guys, uh, you know, set up our next triptych. Cool. Well, maybe maybe we don't game that out on the air as we're being recorded, but it is something to think about. Um, dear listeners, if you would like to have some kind of input into what we read and then talk about, um, I, I think we would welcome those kinds of suggestions as well. Well, in the meanwhile, that's all the questions I had. That's our conversation about reading. Uh, if you have any feedback on this, if you want to make suggestions about the triptych or um, tell me that I need to feel worse because I don't reread all the books for course prep or, or whatever. Um, you can write us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post it in the show notes on the blog at christianhumanist.org when those post. Or you can leave them as Facebook comments. Um, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Facebook. You can rate us on iTunes. All those things we crave and love and appreciate because it helps other people find us. In the meanwhile, what are we doing next week? We are going to talk about an article by uh, Charles Duhigg, I think that's how you say his name, from the Atlantic Magazine. Uh, the title is either Why is America So Angry or The Real Roots of American Rage. Uh, looking at the website, I can't tell which one wants to be the real title. But we're going <laughs> to get angry and uh, then talk about why we are. Sweet. There will be Americans. They will be angry. We'll talk about it. News at 11. All right. Well, in the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs. Uh, this has uh, been an episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. It's a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is uh, Ellen Peterson. And on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, uh, i leave you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>